Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here again with another great guest. You know, health is an area that our podcast has focused on in a number of ways. We had Dr. M. Allen Verko last year talk about the gut. We had, we've talked about hormonal health. We've talked about the low back. We've talked about musculoskeletal injuries. We've talked about health and fitness overall as well. This is an area that I have always been interested in but never really dove deep and so I think we have the right guests for us today. Dr. Joel Lexton has joined us and maybe I'll give a bit of a, uh, a bio on, on, on Joel if that's okay for everyone. Uh, Joel received his uh, MD from the University of Toronto in 1977. He's a prof- professor emeritus in the School of Health Policy and Management at York University in Toronto where he taught health policy until 2016. And he's worked in the emergency department at the University Health Network, uh, also in Toronto, for 33 years. So someone who definitely knows what he's talking about. And he's published two books um, in 2016, Private Profits Versus Public Policy, The Pharmaceutical Industry in the Canadian State. And this is the book that I saw in stores, which caught my attention, Doctors in Denial, Why Big Pharma and the Canadian Medical Profession Are Too Close for Comfort. Dr. Joel Lexton, thanks for joining Two Nobodies today. I told you you're kind of an honorary nobody today, so hopefully that works for you. But appreciate appreciate having you on our show today. Well, thanks very much for the invitation, and I'm glad to be here and to be an honorary nobody. Thanks so much. So I want to first, I always like to understand our guests and where they're coming from. Uh, I do want to for sure understand why you chose to focus on, you know, drugs in the pharmaceutical industry and, and that side of health policy. But what drove you to become an MD to begin with, like your, your interest in medicine? Um, okay. <clears throat> so as your listeners, viewers can probably tell, I'm not young. I was born in 48. So I'm a product of the late 60s, early 70s, and, um, in terms of my university experience, my political experience. And um, Mm. I saw medicine as a way of furthering social activism. Um, I think that it's important that everybody is treated equally when it comes to health care. I didn't see that. Um, when I was in in the 60s, 70s, even now, I don't really see right. it. But so I can I view medicine as um, as an extension of political activism in terms of making sure mm. that everybody gets the health care that they need and that it's affordable and um that we try and eliminate racial, sexual violence or um, biases and all those things combined to make me um, go into medical school and then to continue um, with the political part of medicine after I graduated. What do you mean by the political part of medicine? 
Well, I mean, you can view medicine as being um, just go into the office, or in my case, go into the emergency department, um, mm. see the patients who present, and then go home and watch TV or go play golf or whatever. Or you can mm. see um, medicine as being not just seeing patients, but also advocating for policies that um, further um, social justice goals with, as they relate to healthcare. Um, so that's what I meant by, poli <clears throat> by politics, is the um, social justice part of medicine. And so is that something that you're, do you notice more and more um, MDs are getting involved in that space? Or do you think that there's, there's a bit of a gap there right now? Well, I know that um, amongst the group in our emergency department, we're about 90 people, we serve mm. two hospitals. Um, and there are certainly a, a significant number of people who are involved with um, social justice issues. So during the worst of the pandemic, there were some people who were um, advocating for the homeless in terms of making sure that they had places, if they were had COVID, that they had safe mm -hmm. places to go. Um, Toronto winters aren't as bad as Edmonton winters, but they're still mm -hmm. not very pleasant if you're homeless. Right. So we have people advocating for that. We've got people who are advocating um, for treatment of addiction disorders. Um, mm. So I think that there's a substantial number of people, um, at least the ones that I know, who are um, pushing on a variety of different um, social justice issues. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then, you know, this, this focus on pharmaceutical policy, you know, when, when I saw your book in stores and, um, when it, uh, what caught my eye was just, you know, you think about big pharma and I think, I don't know, as a Canadian, I, you, if you're watching American TV, you're seeing all the advertisements on there, you're watching CNN, every single ad is, is a big pharma ad. And so the connection you, 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 I think it, at least for me anyways, I think that there is this inherent embedment of big pharma in the American medical system. It doesn't seem as overt in Canada, but not to say that it doesn't exist. So when I saw this topic, I'm, I definitely wanted to uh, understand big pharma's influence in our, in our, in our healthcare system. But so for you getting into linking to that, what was the drive to then get into health policy and then focus on uh, the pharmaceutical sector in particular? So I think that um, medicine, healthcare in general, and this is oversimplifying it, but you can look at um, you can look at things from the point of view of um, an equity equality lens, um, mm. or you can look at it from the point of view of a um, a transaction. So you're the patient, you come and see me, I give you a service and you pay me either directly or your insurance or in Canada's case, the government pays me. And this is really a transaction. And that, in that sense, it's not much different than you going in to a store and buying a new computer, buying mm -hmm. something else. 
it's a transaction. Um, you're get, you want something. Um, in the case, in my case, it's healthcare. Um, it could be a commodity, and you pay for it. Um, and I think that's the wrong way of looking at medicine and looking at healthcare. But from the point of view, of, and this is most clear uh, when it comes to pharmaceuticals, because in most of the services that you get, most of what you get from doctors are services, not commodities. Mm. Um, you get, you come, I diagnose you, um, I examine you. These are not commodities. They're not objects. Um, but in when we come to pharmaceuticals, it is your there's a, a hard product out there, and that I think lends itself even more to commodification. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see the ads on American TV. I think mm -hmm. in that country medicines are treated even more as a commodity than they are in Canada. Um, so you can, just the same way as you can advertise new cars, new computers, new whatever, you can, in the States, advertise new drugs. Um, and that, that is a view of medicine that I think takes out the service to the public and replaces it with just a cash transaction. Is there a, a difference in the consumer experience, do you know, in, in the United States and here in Canada? So if someone saw in the United States, if someone saw a drug on TV, could they go to their, their physician and say, hey, I, I really want that drug? And, and does that experience differ here in Canada? Um, so yes, in the States, you can. And there have been studies that show that if patients go in to the emergency to a, see a doctor and they ask for a drug that they've seen on advertised on TV, then in a, a, a reasonably large number of cases, doctors will mm. prescribe that drug even if they don't think that it's not necessarily the best one for their patients. And they're concerned about um, making sure that the patients are happy making sure that patients go, don't um, abandon them and go to another doctor. Um, in Canada, and there was some, uh, some research done on this about, in about, I think 19, oh, sorry, 2010 by a, um, mm. a friend and colleague of mine who was working at UBC at the time. And she found that um, the doctors in Canada would also, um, would also prescribe something that people had seen on TV. But the difference is that people in Canada are much less likely to see those ads mm. um, than they are in the United States. But doctors in okay, Canada so... um, have the same concerns. Um, you know, if I don't prescribe it, then they'll just go down the street to somebody else who will. Um, so there is... Um, there is some, you know, doctors um, are human and they they want to please people the same way that everybody else does. And they will um, give in or they will um, listen to what patients want and sometimes agree, uh, do what the patients are asking 
even if we don't think that it's the necessarily the right decision. And and that's sort of my next question is, um, and I don't know if there are differences in, in each province, but um, doctors can freely then prescribe or like if they, if they think they want to try out a certain drug or so, or do they have, are there certain, um, you know, uh, I guess standards or things that they have to comply with before they can, you know, if a patient asks for something that they've never prescribed with, can the doctor use their own discretion to do that? Or, or are there rules around that? Essentially there are, no rules i mean within okay within reason so you can't come in if you come in to see me with a um a common cold then yeah. um i won't i won't prescribe you a, a drug to treat cancer and if i do mm. um i the provincial college of physicians the licensing body is likely to hit me over the head and tell mm. me not to do it again. Um, mm. But within within reason, doctors can prescribe whatever they want um, when a patient comes in. And this is done sometimes for good reason. So some groups of people like, um, so let's pay, take pediatric cancer. There are very few mm. studies that have actually looked at um, treatment of cancer in children specifically. Um, mm. And that's because there are a lot of, of children who get cancer. So we take what's been done in adults and we then try and adjust that treatment for children. So we're prescribing what's called off-label. In other words, the federal government, Health Canada, has never approved drug X for the treatment of a childhood cancer, but they have approved mm. it for children. So we're um, trying to make sure that um, that we're taking into account the difference in age, body size, etc. But um, we're still prescribing a drug that has never been actually tested, but that's the best we can do in those cases. Um, in other times, though, doctors um, prescribe off-label, in other words, for things that weren't approved by the um, by Health Canada. Um, and when we do that, by and large, if there's no good evidence to back it up, um, people um, are not helped, and there's more likely to be side effects from those um, from that kind of prescribing. Mm, okay. Okay. Um... You talked about the commodification is kind of high in the United States. Is that increasing in Canada, would you say, in terms of how doctors, uh, I guess, uh, you know, are, are there, is there like an overprescribing? Is that commodification happening in Canada? What is that looking like? So there is, well, there's both underprescribing and overprescribing. Um, okay. So underprescribing... Um, is occurring in with high blood pressure, for instance. Um, hmm. Not everybody who's got uh, blood pressure high enough that requires treatment is getting it. Um, really? There are people out there who have um, who have the HIV virus who are, are not getting um, triple therapy to suppress their viral hmm. loads. Um, but on the other hand, there's 
definitely a lot of overprescribing. Um, and this is due to a variety of things, but one of them is um, what's known as disease mongering. And this is okay. um, drug companies. Um, well, drug companies produce useful products. I mean, I'm old enough. I take a few of them. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, drug companies are businesses and they want to expand their market. And so drug companies um, are trying to expand the boundaries of disease so that they can sell more of their drugs. And uh, one prime example of this um, was after 9-11 in the United States, where okay. um, there were one, one company that was um, selling um, drugs for anxiety, had pictures of people looking really worried with headlines, you know, in these times of fear, playing on this idea that, you know, that something can drop out of the sky, another plane, mm. what have you, and that, um, that people were getting frightened about this. And if they were getting frightened about these things, the, the solution was to prescribe um, this company's um, anti-anxiety drug. And we see um, disease mongering in, in, other as, in other ways too. So in Canada, for instance, there were um, ads directed at doctors for what's called low T, in other words, low testosterone, um, okay. with yeah. the implication um, from that if you give this to men, 70-year-old men will be in swimming pools playing, um, uh, playing water volleyball and frolicking around. Um, mm. Clearly not anything that was justified by any evidence at all. So drug companies are trying to expand their markets, and that's one of the contributors to overprescribing. Um, there's also um, the idea that, that drug therapy is the first choice when it comes to any health problem. Um, so for depress mild depression, the um, recommendations, if you look at guidelines, are um, non-pharmacological treatments. Um, mm. So <clears throat> exercise, um, right. a variety of things that don't involve popping a pill. Um, mm. But if you look at the ads that you see in, um, in medical journals, um, you you get the idea that that these kinds of non-drug treatments don't work and you better um, prescribe so that all these things and it's not just the drug companies there are other factors also that um, that push over prescribing but over prescribing is a definite problem and there's now um, a movement of which um, canadian doctors are in the lead called deprescribing in other words remove take helping people stop taking drugs that um are doing them more harm than good right okay um has covid in any way enabled any more over prescribing or has that sort of 
Yeah, as that you talk about the disease mongering piece, right? I, I mean, I wonder if this is COVID presented a right opportunity for big pharma to kind of further do some of that. I don't think that. Well, there were some drugs that were being promoted as um, for COVID that probably turned out to be not terribly effective. So I'm here, I'm thinking mm. of um, something called remdesivir. And I don't know if you followed it, but back when it was introduced, mm -hmm. um, in, I think in the summer of early summer of 2020, um, mm. Anthony Fauci from the US was touting this as a game changer um, mm. in terms of treating people with COVID. Um, and that was the message certainly from the drug companies, but that, or the company that was making it, but it turned out to be really a minor, um, minor benefit, um, not stopping people from dying, not stopping people mm -hmm. from ending up in the ICU. Um, but mm -hmm. by and large, no, um, the drug companies, I don't think were pushing um, products um, during COVID. Um, there, but on the other hand, there was certainly, and especially in the early stages, when we didn't know a lot about COVID, there was this panic to try almost anything in the hopes that it would do something about COVID. And we still see those messages, not from the drug companies, but from um, people like your new premier, at least at one mm. point, touting, um, I believe, ivermectin, which is mm. a great drug if you've got um, scabies um, or some other... Or for veterinary purposes um, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but not yeah. for... Um, not for COVID, but right. um, so there was that push to 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 look for things that might help, and that might have fueled um, some some increase in prescribing. Yeah, uh, before I uh, we dive into the the last book you did, do you think that the reputation of some of these big pharmaceutical companies? And I don't know what it was like before, but I imagine that there is a, you know, there are a lot of suspicions by people. The reputations may have not been so good. At least my view on them hasn't been so good. But uh, but do you think that's changed uh, because of some of their, it's like, you know, the responses that they've had towards COVID in terms of how quickly they've been able to develop vaccines and all these sort of things? Like, has the reputation improved for some of these big pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, I think that they've certainly gotten a bump, um, be, especially because of the um, the vaccines. I think that mm. people's view of them has improved. Um, but you also have to remember that um, these vaccines were, um, well, they were made by the drug companies. Most of the money that went into their right. development and here we're talking about tens of billions of dollars. Um, I think mm. the last figure I saw was about public spending on either the R&D for the vaccines mm -hmm. or purchasing of them 
was about eighty billion dollars, U.S. billion, so right, a um, hundred billion Canadian, um, and but the um, the public isn't getting the credit for spending mm. that kind of money. A lot of most of the credit is going to the drug companies, and they mm. certainly played a role in this. Um, but they're also doing very well. Pfizer was expected to generate or generated, I think, 21 or $22 billion in 2021 from the sale of its vaccine. Moderna generated 17 or 18 billion in revenue. So the drug companies have also done quite well financially from the vaccines that they've, um, that they're making. Yeah. And so, I, so, you know, if I were to link, uh, if I were to connect a couple of things, the $80 billion or however much money has gone into supporting these drug companies for these vaccines, it would have definitely de-risked, um, you know, the, the, the investment that those companies are making. Hey, sure. It definitely did. I mean, you had companies, you had governments putting in orders like Canada did, the U.S. did, um, most mm. of the West West did um, to these companies um, for vaccines that weren't that were still in the development stage. We didn't know mm -hmm. if they were going to work or not, but we were giving the gov the um, the companies billions of dollars um, in advance purchases because we wanted to be first in or in line to be able to get these things. I, I have to ask then, because this is spurring another thought is that if, if, you know, it takes that kind of level of public investment to make, you know, the business case attractive for these companies to invest in these vaccines, what about for cancer drugs? Like, like are these companies actually, do they have the incentive to actually look into drugs that actually will cure cancer or is that not there? Like what, like it makes me question that part of it, you know? Well, I think the idea that drug companies are um, actively suppressing um, certain kinds of drugs is, is a myth. There is no okay. secret vault in the basement <laughs> of um, companies where they've got the cure for cancer and they're, they're just mm. not, um, they're, they're not selling it because that would, once people are cured, that would destroy their market. Um, mm. And cancer drugs, the ones that are coming on the market now are very profitable for drug companies. We're seeing in Canada, we're seeing these drugs going at, oh, 30 to $50,000 per person per year. Um, mm. And in the United States, you can take that figure and probably triple it. Um, so what drug well, what gives you, Joe, not... what, gi Sorry. what gives you that assurance? What, no, that's okay. What gives you that assurance? And, and I'm not saying that I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to get into anything crazy here, but like, what gives you that assurance that, um, because I imagine this is mostly economics, right? Like this is all about, for the most part, profits. And so, um, you know, the whole notion that 
they don't necessarily know how to um, solve or, or treat these these diseases. Um, like what gives you that assurance that they don't have that and that they're, um, that maybe there's a bigger market out there to, I'm not saying there's active suppression, but like, I guess, yeah, just, just wanted your insights on that a little bit more. So, well, first of all, I, I think that this idea about the cure for cancer is somewhere in a drug company vault is the same as the idea that the uh, automobile companies had cars that would get um, 100 miles per gallon um, of mm. gas, and they, they just weren't selling them. Um, mm. These are conspiracy theories. But on the other hand, I mean, there is a grain of truth in that drug companies, because they are primarily um, motivated by, by profits, um, they do focus their research and development in areas where they think that they're going to make the most money. So there are right. some areas that are neglected. Um, this, especially um, when we look at um, what are called neglected tropical diseases. So there are problems out there that, um, that are killing hundreds of thousands of not millions of people annually in low income countries um, mm. that are not that there's not a lot of research going on for new treatments because um, the people in those countries can't afford them. Um, mm. So the drug companies don't see a profit in that. So in that sense, I mean, the drug companies are doing things or not doing things based on profit. Um, but they don't have, as I said, secret. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, well, I appreciate you entertaining that, uh, thought it just something that, uh, I need to need to ask you. So, so let's, let's go into the last book that you wrote, the driver behind that book. Why, why was it important for you to, um, really develop that, that material? Well, I think. My, my experience as a as a physician, and also my experience in um, in the role of doctors as drivers of social justice, led me to believe strongly that the value of um, the medicines that we have was not being mm -hmm. realized, um, and mm -hmm. it was not being realized because one, um, drugs were overpriced, um, and two, because the, um, of the relationship between the drug companies and physicians, and not just physicians, but also government, uh, meant that drugs were um, being approved that didn't have um, good evidence that drugs were being um, left on the market that were potentially unsafe for a lot of people and that um, doctors in, and the medical profession in general was in some cases um, siding with the drug companies um, and not siding with with our patients. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, that's... Uh... 
that's that's really interesting um so when you talk about the relationships that are being formed what is that like when does that start happening with physicians like does it start happening as soon as you know uh people leave the uh, people are um, uh, as soon as they graduate from medical school or what is that re- when does that relationship start and how does that get formed over time well like all relationships it's this is a complex area and it actually starts in some cases during medical school um okay so at some points you um you medical students are getting um, things for free that um, Mm. come from drug companies. So back in the 2000s um, at the University of Toronto, every year there was what was called colloquially called pain week. Um, Okay. So pain week was they got all of the different health science students. So, not just medical students, pharmacy students, nursing students, physio students, et cetera. And they had a week devoted to um, diagnosing and treating pain. Mm -hmm. Um, But as at that point, as part of that week, you had a, at the University of Toronto, you had a speaker who was on, who was an MD, but was on the speakers bureau for Purdue Pharma. Um, Purdue Mm -hmm. is the maker of OxyContin. So he Mm -hmm. was giving lectures to the students and you had textbooks um, being given out for free, at least to the medical students. I don't know about the other students, but Mm. the textbook was sponsored by and had been developed partly by Purdue. Wow. So you were getting these interactions between the industry and and medical students at least indirectly um you have people at i don't know if things have changed but you were having people give lectures without um acknowledging their possible conflicts of interest so people Mm. who were on um, advisory boards of drug companies um, so the influence start, can start in medical school. And then once you're finished in medical school and you're in the hospital, you're potentially seeing, um, representatives from drug companies. These are men and women who, um, go into hospitals to try and, um, talk to doctors about what to prescribe Mm. your um some cases um drug companies are sponsoring um what are called rounds where you're talking about medical uh, disease topics or you're talking about um particular patients who have presented with what cases that are so-called interesting um you're getting um, lunches that might have been paid for by drug companies. Um, you're working with people. And this is, this is happening. This is happening in Canada, Joel. Um, 
it's happening. I don't know how widespread it is these days. It was certainly okay. reasonably widespread um, 20 years ago. Um, okay. It definitely is continuing to happen in doctors' offices um, mm. across Canada. The estimates that I've seen are that about oh, 70% of doctors will see sales wow. representatives the the men and women who come to their offices um, to talk to them about the products that their companies make. Um, so there, and then you have um, you have other kinds of interactions. So you go to any reasonable size medical conference, and drug companies will have purchased booths. Um, where they're displaying their products and they have their sales representatives there to talk to doctors. You can pick up um, often snacks at their, um, mm. at their booths. You, they may be giving out um, what are called patient aids. So these mm. are um, tear off um things that you can give to patients to talk about the disease that they've got. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of interaction. In fact, the last figures that I've seen for how much drug companies in Canada are spending on um, promotion to doctors, this was from 2016, it was $450 million on promotion um, wow. to Canadian doctors and drug companies are run by quite smart people and they're not going to spend 450 million dollars unless they think that they're getting more money back in um, in mm. increased sales so on the surface I think if like when I hear it and I imagine other people listening to this the way you kind of walked, how that relationship gets formed in all these stages, the the lunches, the sales rep meetings, all that. Um, you know, I would think to some extent though, like with sales rep meetings, those are those are somewhat important because, you know, it's information that is useful probably for the physician. Um, and these are opportunities to to share, you know, maybe what the latest products are in the latest research or something like that. But what is the line for you that gets crossed that you, or maybe there are multiple lines, but what are, what are those lines, I guess, that get crossed, which make you feel like, okay, the process or, or the, the integrity is lost, I guess, in the process. Well, first of all, the general evidence um, about what happens when doctors and drug companies interact. And I was part of a group that looked at this um, about 10 years ago. And we mm. evaluated, I think at that point, about 50, 55 studies that have been done mm. in different countries around the world. Uh, what happens to prescribing? And we looked at three different levels or three different aspects of prescribing. So we looked at the cost of prescribing, we looked at the volume of prescribing, and we looked at how appropriate were the drugs that were being prescribed. And right. based on all of these studies, there was one study that showed in 
that the um, the cost went down. But for all of the other studies, for all of the three different aspects of prescribing, what the the literature showed was that either prescribing didn't change, or that it got worse. In other words, doctors were prescribing more expensively. They were prescribing drugs more often, and they were mm. the appropriateness of the prescription went down. And in particular, um, again, re, um, there was a project that I was involved with that looked at the visits between sales representatives and doctors in um, Vancouver, Montreal, Sacramento, and Toulouse in France. Um, mm. And so what we had did was we got doctors to fill out survey forms after they'd seen these sales reps. And we were mm. particularly interested in um, how much safety information the sales reps gave to doctors. And right. what we found was that at best, if you talked about things like minor side effects, that was done mm -hmm. in about, I believe about one in eight visits between sales reps and doctors. And if you went to serious side effects, that was about one in 20 visits. And if you wow. went to what are called drug-drug interactions, in other words, if you're taking drug X, um, watch out if, you, if you're going to take drug Y, our drug, because they can produce um, harmful effects. That was in about one in 20 um, mm. interactions. So drug reps, at least in our study, and this is across all three um, or all three countries, all four cities, we're not giving out um, safety information to doctors. So by and large, um, the message seemed to be that at least when it comes to um, comes to safety, you should not be listening to the sales representatives. Um, mm. You should be going. <coughs> to unbiased sources of information, um, <clears throat> and that's not the sales reps. So that's that research. Oh, is there's very, another. Very... Let me give you one more. Sure, yeah. Um, so one more um, anecdote or one more piece of information, which is doctors think that we're not going to be influenced by our interactions between with sales reps or with drug companies in general. Um, and this has been looked at in a number of cases. So if you ask me as an individual, am I going to be, or a hundred me's, am I going to be influenced by my interactions with, um, with drug companies? one in a hundred will say yes a lot mm. but if you ask me about my colleagues are they going to be influenced then <laughs> the answer is about a third of them will be influenced okay a right. lot so we think right. individually that we're invulnerable 
but we're not so sure about our colleagues. That's that is super fascinating um, to hear. And so then, how how should doctors approach uh, these situations? Like, so has this information been shared with with you know the different medical associations? And like, what's the reaction to this kind of research? I guess. So yes, the information has been shared, and things are very slowly getting better. Um, so as I said a little earlier, about 70% of doctors see sales reps, um, 30 or 40 years ago, it probably would have been a hundred percent or near a hundred percent. Um, and the, all of the, um, major medical groups. So the Canadian medical association, Canadian College of Family Physicians have mm -hmm. um, codes around interactions between doctors and drug companies, and they do offer some um, caution about these kinds of interactions. Um, but by and large, um, my view and the view that's shared by at least some people is that um, doctors should not be seeing these sales representatives. That the information, it's not clear that you're getting a full picture about drugs when you see these people. You're getting partial information. You tend to get the information that's most, um, most favorable to the companies. And if you want to mm -hmm. get if you want to check whether or not drug the sales reps not necessarily have lied to you, but have um, omitted some things, you're going to have to go and read up about the drugs on your own. So if you're going to have to do that, having seen the sales reps, why not just skip the sales reps entirely? And if you want to see, if you want to find out about drugs, um, look up in objective sources um, and see what they say. And by and large, you know, if you're a GP um, in Canada, you're mm -hmm. only prescribing maybe a hundred different drugs. That'll account for virtually everybody that you see in your office. And a hundred drugs is not an insurmountable uh, number to be informed about. And then if somebody comes in and you think you need a drug that's not on your usual list, then read up about it. There are, especially now with the internet available, it's pretty easy to get objective information, information that hasn't been filtered through drug mm -hmm. companies. So my advice is skip the, um, skip the sales reps, um, skip, the free lunches and there was some research done in the United States looking at the effects of meals, sponsored meals of under $20. So mm. about what you would pay if you went into McDonald's and mm -hmm. that research showed that doctors were influenced by um, a meal under $20. Mm. And you know, <laughs> I don't see doctors out on the streets with tin cups um, 
saying, you know, we'll treat for food or we'll treat for mm. spare change. Um, mm. Doctors can afford their own meals. We don't have mm. to be going and taking free meals from drug companies. Totally. So if, if you're saying skip those lunches, skip the sales rep meetings, what would be the best way for um, physicians to get that information? Like, I mean, I know you said uh, object, they, could, they could look at some objective uh, research out there. Physicians don't always, I imagine, would say maybe they don't always have the time to, to do those things. But is there, can there be centralized bodies where, uh, where those sales reps meet with and then those centralized bodies can kind of uh, filter th down information or maybe that exists. I don't know, but well, we do have, although not well supported, we do have what's called academic detailing. Um, mm. so the sales reps from drug companies, um, are known as detailers because there's, they give you the details about the, um, the drugs and mm. in places. Uh, so in BC, um, and I believe in, in a few other provinces, but not widespread, we have our academic detailers. And what mm -hmm. this involves is you get pharmacists who are trained in person-to-person -person interactions, and they mm -hmm. go out and see doctors and talk mm -hmm. to doctors about um, drugs that where the prescribing could be better or where there's over or under prescribing. So you're getting information from professional colleagues who do not have a commercial motivation. And that's one way of um, delivering objective information to doctors. Mm. But as I said, not well supported by provincial governments. In other countries, mm. Um, and I'm thinking here of Australia and the UK, mm. you have um, objective sources of information. So textbooks um, that are being underwritten, the cost is being underwritten by, um, by government um, and are available either at, for free to doctors or at lower costs where doctors can look up things while they're, while patients are in their offices or, or after patients have left. Um, we've, what it's been studied that when you doctors get together as groups, mm -hmm. um, and they talk about, um, particular diseases, particular drugs that that, kind of information um, improves prescribing. So there are various ways of, 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 of um, eliminating the drug companies as sources of information that have been shown to lead to better prescribing. Um, mm. But we need also to, to get um, resources into these. So why is it that um, that governments are leaving a large portion of the cost of underwriting continuing medical education to drug companies? Hmm. 
Um, because when drug companies, that's what they're doing when drug companies will sponsor um, s- lectures at medical conferences. Yeah. So it might be the yeah. Merck lecture in mm. Disease X. Um, the, um, the, when drug companies are paying for the, um, put money into um, medical conferences, they don't necessarily choose the speakers, but they're underwriting the cost of these, which makes it easier for doctors to go. But there's also evidence that even when drug companies are not choosing the speakers, that their messaging is still coming through. Um, So I think that governments, and this costs um, governments money in the end, because to the extent that that drug companies influence leads to poor prescribing, that increases overall healthcare costs. So why Mm -hmm. is it that governments are willing to tolerate these increases in costs um, and not try and avoid them by being um, by funding um, continuing medical education and I'm not talking here about the drug about governments directly being involved um, doctors won't like that in fact I'm not in favor of that but what I am in favor mm is governments making money available to thir- to unbiased third-party groups so you can have um, co- medical associations um, getting money from governments and then using that money um, for continuing medical education as mm-hmm. the groups see fit. So the government is just providing the money, but they're not um, directing how it's going to be used. Right. That's an interesting idea. Um, you spoke about uh, you're starting to get into uh, talking about the role that pharmacists could play a bit. Um, and I, I wanted to start shifting towards drug costs. And, you know, something we're seeing here in Alberta, and I imagine I'm sure in different provinces as well, is the increased role that pro- pharmacists have now in, in prescribing, for instance, or or being able to at least, um, you know, if the prescription from a physician says suggests a certain brand name that they can then maybe substitute for generics or something like that. How, what do you think of maybe what looks to be like the increasing role of a pharmacist in the prescribing of, of, of drugs, I guess? So... I think pharmacists have a very good training in the use of medications. And I Mm. definitely think that we need to be um, taking more advantage of that. So I I think, I don't think that the role of pharmacists is um, to, to count out pills um, Mm. or to run necessarily to run small businesses. Pharmacists are drug information specialists, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's how we should be paying them um, for those mm-hmm. roles. And in some places, now this is not necessarily widespread, but some clinics will employ pharmacists um, so that doctors write the prescriptions 
and then they say, now go down the hall and see um, so-and-so, our pharmacist, and they will be able to answer questions for you about these drugs. You can go over the other drugs that you're taking and see whether or not there are any concerns about interactions. If um, the pharmacists can do um, audits and see if there might be drugs that you could talk about slowly um, discontinuing. So I think mm. that would be, a, that's an excellent role for pharmacists. Um, pharmacists are also getting involved in areas like um, continuing prescriptions that people have been on for a while. So as I said, I'm old. Um, I'm on some medications for my blood pressure. I've been taking mm. these for like 10 years. Um, mm. And I don't see any reason why a pharmacist can't renew the prescription um, for me. Um, all they're going to do is right now is call up the, the doctor and say, can Joel election get a refill on his prescription? The doctor <laughs> doesn't have to see me. All the doctor has to do is say yes. Um, but you know, the farm, I don't see why the pharmacist has to t take that step. Um, pharmacists are now giving out vaccinations in, yeah. at least in Ontario. I don't know about in, in Alberta um, too. Yeah. In Alberta. Um, yeah. the, you talked about, um, generics. And in fact, mm. this has been something that, um, pharmacists have been doing for decades now is, mm substituting um, generics for brand name drugs. Mm. Um, and that's perfectly safe to do. And pharmacists um, also have a role there because they the generics won't look like the original brand name um, product. They may be a different shape. They may be a different color. And mm. if some people will get confused by that. And pharmacists can explain to people, no, you're getting the um, the same drug. Um, it may look different, but it's going to act just the same. So pharmacists definitely have a, um, a major role to play. Um, and I think that uh, we should encourage the, that role in terms of um, being drug information specialists. And that's how pharmacists should be making their money by using their intellectual knowledge, not by necessarily running a small business. Mm. It's, it's really good to hear you talk about that sort of those ideal integration, integration points between, you know, medical clinics, physicians and pharmacists. Um, and I, and I think more of that is being explored, but it, it seems like it's being done from a, from a cost cutting perspective, maybe not necessarily from a, to the benefit of the patient is, is what I'm noticing, but, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're, if you're feeling differently, but what, I guess, what more can, can, you know, I guess this would be more the jurisdiction of the provinces, but what can provinces do to further enable or empower, um, pharmacists to take a greater role, I guess. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, 
And I think that what pharma, what provinces um, need to be able to do is um, is make sure that, like doctors, pharmacists also have um, have up to date knowledge about the mm. the drugs that they're um, that they're stocking. Um, mm-hmm. in their in their clinics in their um, stores if they're working in stores so just as physicians need to keep up to date so do pharmacists but again um, objective sources of information tend to be limited mm-hmm. um, there there's safety information new safety information that's coming out about drugs all the time, but it's not always clear that that's accessible to pharmacists. So we mm. can make that kind of information um, sure. yeah. more accessible. Um, um, there's also I guess, uh, maybe just to fo- oh no, that's okay. Um, I don't know if there's more to add, if you had more to add there. Um, there's also um, software that can help. Um, and this may be already being used, but software that will tell pharmacists um, about drug-drug interactions, mm. um, so that there can be, um, so that pharmacists can uh, caution patients. Um, I think that provincial governments can encourage interactions between pharmacists and doctors. So sometimes um, pharmacists are reluctant to call up doctors if they think mm-hmm. that there's a um, the doctors have um, prescribed a drug that's not appropriate um, mm. because doctors will sometimes react badly. They think that they're, um, the pharmacists um, don't know what they're talking about. So I think that encouraging this kind of interaction um, between doctors and physicians, there already is that, but I think encouraging more of that, um, provincial governments can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to sh- I want to start shifting a little bit here to drug costs, and then and then definitely want to end off with our two questions that we ask every guest. But uh, as you know, we're all experiencing these high inflation rates and. I'm sure that uh, drugs are not immune to that and, and drug prices are probably rising. You know, there's this conversation right now in, in, at the federal level about universal pharmacare and, and the role that it needs to play. Where are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on universal pharmacare and um, what needs to happen? And, and also, are you kind of... Uh, perplexed that sometimes the provinces are not always on board with this sort of thing. I know there's always this tussle between control and jurisdiction and that sort of thing, but it seems to make sense that um, the Sorry, federal government takes a bit of a lead on this. On me. What are your thoughts? Um, so Pharmacare are, was supposed to actually be part of what we term Medicare. If you go mm. back to the Hall Royal Commission on Healthcare in the mid 1960s. Mm. Um, mm. We were Hall recommended first do dot first provide payment for doctors 
services and then um, provide payment for drugs. Um, but somehow we skipped that um, second, second part of the recommendations um, and we're still um, talking about that. So, mm-hmm. and what we're finding now is that somewhere in the range of 25% of Canadians um, have difficulty affording, affording the prescriptions that they're getting. So they either mm-hmm. don't buy the, the drugs or they, um, they buy, they are splitting pills or they're skipping doses because of mm-hmm. the costs. And that means, um, down the road, higher healthcare costs in general, people are getting sicker, um, because they're not on the medications that they need. And this particularly is affecting um, what are called the working poor. So if you're mm-hmm. on welfare in most provinces, you're, um, or I think in all provinces, actually, you're covered by a provincial drug plan. Um, if you're in a, a reasonable job, unionized job, or you're um, in the managerial group, you've got benefits with your um, job, which covers drug costs. But if you're the working poor, so you're in McDonald's or Seven Eleven mm-hmm. minimum wage, mm-hmm. you're not getting covered by the provinces. You're not, your job doesn't have benefits. You're paying the full cost of the prescriptions. These are the people who are suffering the most. So we've got mm-hmm. an equity issue. Um, in terms of people being able to get um, medications that they need. Um, There's a cost issue. Um, So there's something uh, most people have heard of a monopoly situation where there's one seller. The the reverse is monopsony, which Mm. is one buyer. And if you've got a monopsony situation, you can get a much better deal on things. Um, For sure. But we don't have that in Canada for most drugs. We've got a hundred, well, we've got 13 different public drug plans, 10 provinces, three territories. Then there are also Mm. five federal drug plans. and then there's something like a hundred thousand private plans, so we don't have that kind of unified buying power, which makes mm-hmm. our um, the cost of our medications higher. So we spend currently in the range of about oh, I think it's about thirty billion dollars a year on drugs, and mm-hmm. well. Farm, a universal pharmacare plan would increase public spending. It would decrease overall spending. So the estimates range from savings of four to seven billion billion dollars overall per year. So mm-hmm. we would improve equity. We would decrease costs with universal pharmacare, and the other thing which people often don't consider is that the more 
with skin in the game that um, governments have. So skin in this case means money being spent. The more mm -hmm. that governments are spending, the more incentive they have to make sure that drugs are being used properly because they don't want to be seen to be wasting public dollars. Sure. So governments then start to subsidize um, programs that make sure that patients know um, how, to use, how to take the drugs appropriately and how doctors and, and subsidize education for doctors to prescribe appropriately. So Pharmacare is a triple win situation when it mm -hmm. comes to using medications. They're used more appropriately. We save on the price of them and there there's a, we improve equity. So mm -hmm. overall, I think that we should be moving towards a, um, a pharmacare program. Now you, you talked about, um, the provinces and the provinces, um, have a reason to be concerned. So back in the sixties, when we started, when Medicare started, the federal mm -hmm. government said, we will give you 50% of every dollar that you spend on, on healthcare, public, on either hospital services or doctor services. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. federal government has unilaterally changed the terms of how it's going to give money to the provinces. And the provinces are looking at a pharmacare um, plan and seeing, okay, so right now you're saying you're going to subsidize pharmacare with, um, in this way, but the, after the next election, are you going to change mm. that? Are you going to be giving us as much money? Are you going to be putting on more conditions? Um, mm -hmm. So I think from the federal government's point of view, what they have to do is they have to um, put in long-term guarantees to the provinces mm -hmm. about how that money is going to be given to them so that the provinces can safely, um, it, because the provinces are also going to be spending money on pharmacare and the provinces need the assurance that things are not going to be changed unilaterally by the federal government. But these are things that can be worked out. Um, there's going to be bumps in the road, but the mm -hmm. federal government and the provinces can do this. I'm quite confident in that. We've seen, um, for instance, recently, there is now childcare um, deals mm -hmm. between the federal government and all the provinces. There's going to be a partial dental care program rolled out for families mm -hmm. that are making less than $90,000 per year. Um, so these can be done. Mm. Yeah, no, and, and uh, I, I share in your optimism, uh, and you're right, the child care agreement is a, is a good uh, example. Um, I think I think the federal government, though, has separate agreements with each province, and it's not they necessarily do. across the board, right? So no. would it, I guess would, would, would they have similar separate agreements in this case for a pharmacare program, or would it have to be across the, the board? 
Well, I would certainly like to see it across the board. I mean, I don't think that there's a reason if you live in Alberta that things in terms of access to to drug prescription drugs that they should be different than if you live in Ontario. We should be Mm -hmm. there should be the same group of drugs that are being publicly subsidized. And if the costs, if there are out-of-pocket costs, they should be the same. We don't want people having to move from Ontario to Alberta because the the drugs that they need are cheaper in Alberta than they are in Ontario. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's so much more I could talk to you about, Joel, and uh, I feel like you and I could have a conversation for a long time, but I am uh, cognizant of your time on the Saturday morning here, and I was uh, maybe we could shift to our final two questions that I, we ask every guest, if that's okay with you. Sure. So uh, the first question for our guests is uh, our five for dinner question, dead or alive, who are five people you would want to uh, have supper with, and uh, curious if you'd want to have them individually or, or together. Um, I probably want people together. Um, okay. I think that there's, that makes for a much livelier conversation. And, you know, I think that I'm reasonably smart, but I think that other people can come up with questions or ideas that I would never have thought about. Um, mm. and I enjoy listening to, um, to that kind of discussion. So who would I choose? Um, so right now, I think um, that I would go for, some of these people are dead, some are alive. Mm. I would mm. take um, Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take um, somebody who may not be as well known, A.S. Neal. He was okay, no, the I don't know founder of a of what a, a school school in the UK called Summerhill, um, a so-called okay. free school. He had very um, radical ideas about education. Hmm. Um, I would take Gough Whitlam, who was the okay. prime minister in Australia from seventy-two to seventy-five, a Labour prime minister who had took, did things that really advanced um, the, the country mm. there. It was he changed. popular? Was he a popular prime minister? Um, some of the things he did were popular. Um, mm. um, overall, I think that in retrospect, people look back on him as one of the best prime ministers that Australia has ever had. Hmm. Um, I would take Tommy Douglas because Mm -hmm. of his involvement in Medicare. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fifth person, um, I would go for um, Lula, who is, I can't remember his full name, but he's the person from the Workers' Party who's running to be president of Brazil. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I would. Wasn't there a different? Like to, there was a different Lula in Brazil as well, wasn't there? Is it the same 
Lula that's one. running he again. He was president okay. before, and now he's running yeah. to be president again. So I would take these people. These people all embody progressive ideas. Um, mm. They come from different fields, um, and um, they all made a significant mark on their own societies. Um, mm. So I would like to, to talk to them about what they've done and um, hear what they think about what's going on right now in, in the world. Um, I think that, you know, we're fortunate to be here in Canada, um, mm -hmm. when you, especially when we look around the world, but I think we also, there are a lot of challenges in Canada that um, we need to meet. Um, in a lot, in some cases, we're doing okay. In some cases, we're doing miserably. And I'd like to hear what they have to say about um, what's happening in this country and also what's happening in other places around the world. Mm -hmm. Very incredible five. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the Lula, um, and I don't also remember his last name, but uh, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping he's successful. I think their current uh, yes. president has been, uh, has been a bit challenging to say, to say the least. So yes, the um, Brazilian Donald Trump. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in some cases, maybe arguably worse. So who knows? Um, final question, uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? Um, I know for sure that the best thing that's ever happened to me was getting married to mm. the woman I'm still married with to mm. and having two wonderful kids. Mm. Those are, that's what I know for sure. That's amazing. How long have you been married to your wife? Um, since uh -oh. 1984. <laughs> so what's that? 38 years. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. I ambushed her in a now closed bookstore in Montreal. That's a, that's so good. That's a great story. We had met at a medical conference um, and had been chatting. And she said she had gone to medical school in, in Montreal mm. to McGill. And she said she mm. was going to a bookstore to look around. And there was one quite well-known bookstore. And I was pretty sure that that was where she was going to go. So I walked down and there <laughs> she was. Times have changed. People don't do those sort of things anymore over the <laughs> internet and stuff. I think no, that's you, uh, quite romantic. You order you. your books over Amazon. Totally, totally. And then you swipe left or right to find your partner. So it's a very different yeah. ball game nowadays. So, uh, Joel, I, I really appreciate the conversation. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Um, you know, just hearing about how you got into the field. To me, I always like to understand the drivers of people. So to know that you went into this because of that sort of social activism and that even um, outside of your practice that you continue to advocate for patients and the right services and and trying to ensure that the system is set up in the best way that patients benefit the most um it's really great to know that uh, people like you exist so uh, appreciate your time today and appreciate the conversation i hope you enjoyed yourself as much as i did yep it's been great i enjoyed it um 
And um, I think I li listen to what you guys do, you and your um, your colleague Kyle do. And mm. I think you guys, um, you know, this kind of conversation is great. It um, mm. feels natural just sitting around. Um, be even better if we could do this in person, I think. Um, you bet. But, but no, I think that, um, that you guys are bringing ideas, um, out, um, and exposing them to, uh, to a larger audience. And some people will agree and some people will think that this is just a bunch of, um, horse manure, but that's fine. It gets <laughs> them thinking. For sure. That's, uh, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's, that's kind of been the focus for us is to have these kind of longer conversations because people make assumptions and you always hear these sound bites and you don't get the full truth into things. And so we don't edit any of our, our shows and we want to hear people fully speak to things. So I'm glad uh, we were able to have this opportunity with you. We'll put all of uh, Joel's information in our show notes so that you can read up on his bio, check out his links to his different books and again, Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you folks uh, in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Thanks so much.